Well, we are in a series on the doctrine of union with Christ and how it meets with various lies of identity as made popular by Henry Nouwen. And we've addressed the lies already. I am what I own. I am what I do. I am what people say about me. And last week we began a two-parter on uh, I am my worst moment. I am my worst moment can be uh, thought of in terms of something we did, uh, perhaps it is a sin or an accident we cause that has come to define our existence and in turn has become the core of our identity. Like with uh, Hester Prynne in Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, whatever that sin is, you are uh, that sin and perhaps the whole community defines you by it too. Well, last week we looked at this lie in terms of King David, who is both one of the most celebrated figures in the Bible, and rightly so, but also one of the most notorious. And we did a deep dive on his sins, really his crimes, against Bathsheba and Uriah, and we asked the question, who is David, in light of his worst moment? Apart from Christ, David is his sin. David is his sin, and he cannot escape that reality. And as much as he may ignore what he did, or repress his emotions or his memories or try to cover it all up, he cannot escape it. He cannot escape what he did. But with Christ, there is life, righteousness, reconciliation, redemption, and a future. And it's, it's not because David made amends or made things right. There's no mulligans. There's nothing you can do to take all that back. No, it is all because, as Paul puts it, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So righteousness, and reconciliation, redemption, and a future, they all come from, come from him alone. Does it come from David? It's nothing we create. It all comes from his hand, and it is all of it a gift. Well, what about Bathsheba? Who is she after David's sins against her? Well, what little we know of her is that at the time of 2 Samuel 11, she was roughly 18 or 19 years old. She was a righteous and godly married woman who was the daughter of one of David's inner circle and the granddaughter of one of his uh, royal advisors, her husband. Uriah was a Gentile convert who was a prominent warrior who was, in turn, also uh, fairly well connected in David's court. So she was most likely newly married, probably within... I don't know, the last year or two. And her life, as we might say, was on the up and up. She had a lot to look forward to, but in a moment that all changed and what she thought was a private instance of keeping God's law led to being taken by the most powerful man in the kingdom who in turn murdered her husband. She was impregnated twice by David within a two-year stretch, a man 30 years older than her, and he remained in power for another 20 years. So what's her identity in light of her worst moment? A moment that was not her fault. Well, the text doesn't mention Bathsheba again for another 20 years, so we can only guess at what her inner state and what her day-to-day life was like after this. Even so, while our passage doesn't describe anything about the particulars of Bathsheba's life, it does have something to say about suffering. And it's relevant, I think, to both Bathsheba's life 
and as you can guess, two hours as well. Well, our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to pick it up with verse 3. I initially wanted to end with verse 7, but the rest of the phrase is so good, we're going to just keep on reading a little bit. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and he will deliver us again. You, may, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer again. Heavenly Father, as Paul says there, there are many blessings in praying for each other. And so, as the pastor, I pray to you for us that this would be a good time together of meditating on your word, that we may be comforted in your word because it is Christ himself. We pray that Christ would be amongst us now through his spirit, that those of us who are dealing with afflictions, those of us who are wounded, those of us who are suffering, those of us who are dealing with all kinds of problems and pains, frustrations, stresses, anxieties, depressions, you name it, Lord, might see in you our hope and know that it will not last forever. We pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, if last week's lie was dealing with a sin uh, we committed or the suffering that we caused someone else, this week's lie involves sin or pain that is committed against us. So instead of being a, a perpetrator or a victimizer, we are the receivers of that. We are the victim. And it could be, of course, a deliberate sin or an accident or even an unexpected diagnosis. The suffering could be psychological or mental, physical or emotional, or as is as typically the case, it is a, a combination of all of those things. So for example, while I have been physically hurt by, by other people with, well, one of those times involving the full swing of a baseball bat connected with my unprotected head that came really less than an inch from hitting my temple, which I assume would have killed me, and it felt like it killed me. Most of my worst moments caused by, by other people centered on intentional public embarrassment or rejection by someone I liked or, or loved or the shame of being threatened or bullied or being ridiculed 
for my failures or mistakes. And most of those events I've been able to conceal. You know, never let them see you cry or never let them see you sweat. So it appears as though everything is pretty much fine and I've lived a rosy life. That's most people. Most people successfully and superficially cover their pain. Even so, everyone suffers. Everyone is a victim of something. Everyone is nursing a wound, probably many wounds, but we, we know how to appear like we're calm and, and keeping on and that everything is, is just fine. Now, clearly, we don't all suffer with the exact same things, and I'm assuming uh, most of you have never been hit full swing across the jaw with an aluminum baseball bat, just like I never endured abuse from my parents or endured racism like some of my friends have. You know, some people struggle because of a one-time, acute, unforeseen event that changed everything, while others suffer chronically over a period of time. And of course, none of this is new or unique to our times. This is what people have been dealing with since Adam's fallen to sin. But what is different as opposed to, say, 200 years ago, or really maybe even within the last 60 to 80 years, is that our culture is structured in such a way as to maximize dopamine, comfort, and pleasure in an attempt to keep pain and suffering at bay. To put it another way, boredom was not a problem up until recent times. Arguably, it wasn't really even a problem for me in my 1970s and 1980s childhood. But in a culture where we never have to leave the comfort of our home in order to get everything we need to live, boredom is a perpetual problem that is made worse by the devices and conveniences that not only enable boredom, but have convinced us that we should never have to endure anything uncomfortable, let alone painful. So when real pain and suffering shows up, and it always does, we are not merely surprised by it, we are bewildered and incapacitated by it in a way that previous generations were not, and we think we don't deserve, we shouldn't have to deal with this at all. It's not fair. Not that previous generations didn't suffer, of course. I think Soldiers fighting in World War II suffered in similar ways as soldiers fighting in Vietnam or both Iraq wars or Afghanistan or what have you. But our ability to comprehend or make sense of that suffering has changed. It's why, according to some studies, upwards of 80% of Americans drink regularly. That is daily or perhaps not daily, they're catching it all up on the weekends. And of those, by, by some estimates, a good number of them drink for the purpose of self-medicating. It's not coincidental that rates of anxiety and depression are at all-time highs among every demographic, perhaps most notably among the upper classes, even as we enjoy comforts that would have been unimaginable even 50 years ago. Embedded within our culture is the myth of economic progress as the engine for finding happiness or more accurately, and at the risk of perhaps mixing my metaphors, it's the recipe, if followed, that will result in the greatest amount of happiness and, in turn, the least amount of pain and suffering. 
It's the belief, the expectation that our lives should follow a continual upward trajectory in which our lives move into the realm of, and she lived happily ever after. This is the myth that stands behind the pursuit of things like a college education or getting the right job or the right spouse or the right kids and the right house and the status and fulfillment to go along with those things. You know, I am what I own. I am what I do. I am what people say about me. It's like the conversation I routinely have with one of my my best friends who laments his choices and where his life is right now. And inspired by the movie of the same name, I've taken to asking him, what if this is as good as it gets? What if this is as good as it gets? So what if this is the most money you will ever make? What if this is the city you are going to die in? What if this is the best job you will ever have? What if this is just who your spouse is? And he seems to be getting dumber and fatter by the day. What if, like Bathsheba, all your needs are being met? In David's palace, you have a beautiful son, but the life you once had is never coming back. And the future you once dreamed of is gone forever, buried in an unmarked grave alongside your husband. Who are you then? Well, one of the most unpleasant things, or perhaps ignored things about the Bible, at least from modern American perspective, is that it assumes suffering is the norm. Suffering is the norm. Not that suffering is just the way things are or is no big deal or like Hinduism, it's just an illusion to move past. No, suffering is real and it is an intrusion into God's good creation. Sin and suffering are not the way things are supposed to be and we feel that in the depths of our being. So if you've ever been at a funeral and heard death is just part of life, that's not a Christian view of the world. That's a pagan view of the world. God doesn't see things that way. Suffering is not something a few unfortunate people have to deal with. No sin, the source of all suffering, is like a virus embedded deep in creation that has affected every last thing, including all of us. It's why all of us are both the victims of sin, but also the perpetrators of sin. We've been hurt, and we hurt others, and that cycle continues. It's why Paul says, in Romans 8, that all of creation groans in anticipation of humanity's redemption. See, the Bible never takes suffering lightly. It never tells us to just move on or just get over it. I mean, just go read the Psalms. They're full of this, or lamentations, and you will find the people of God crying out to God over the consequences of their sin or the consequences of someone sinning against them. That was our, our passage this morning, our preparation from David. Well, this takes us to our passage in 2 Corinthians. And Paul begins verse 3 of that passage by praising God who comforts his people in their affliction so that in turn they may comfort others in their affliction with the same comfort they've received from God. And when you see Paul kind of layering the same words over and over again, you should pay attention. So Paul assumes that one, we will suffer or endure afflictions. That's going to be life. That's going to be life. It's not to say there isn't good things and wonderful things. There's comfort, of course, but no, afflictions do come. And two, God is not distant from us as we endure it. No, God comforts his people in the midst of our suffering and affliction. And three, 
And this is something we'll get to in a couple of weeks. This is something that's missed by us in our culture, that we suffer together. We suffer together as the people of God, united in one body in Christ. Well, the comfort that Paul is referring to is, well, it's Christ himself. It's not mere platitudes that that comfort us. Well, you're in our thoughts, you're in our prayers. As nice as those things are, no, it's Christ himself, the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's him who comforts us. And what's fascinating, and this is the reason why I chose this passage for this sermon, and there are a lot of great passages to choose from. The reason I chose it is that Paul ties our suffering to Christ's suffering. So as he said in Galatians, we are crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. Well, it is not merely our sins that were crucified at Golgotha, though that's obviously and clearly true. Now, Paul means that our suffering in this life is a participation in Christ's life and his suffering. Grant McCaskill, who I am indebted to for this, this whole series, he raises a really interesting point about this. So often we understand passages just like this one as suffering for Christ's sake as the personal choice to follow him. And some have called this cruciformity, that is, you know, living a Christ, uh, excuse me, a cross-formed or a cross-shaped or a cross-centered Life. And it's like what I mentioned earlier in the service with Matthew 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, whoever would be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me. That is a call to, to radical discipleship where we daily die to self and live to Christ, even if it means we will be led to capital punishment at the hands of the state, which is what crucifixion was. Well, that's a particular kind of suffering for Christ. McCaskill, however, thinks that Paul is not merely saying that we may suffer in ways similar to Christ, but that our experience of suffering in general is a sharing in his suffering. As he writes, the sufferings are are not for the gospel in the sense that they are things befalling us as a consequence of the gospel, but are, in fact, part of the gospel. That is, suffering is given meaning precisely because it is the suffering of Christ's body, that is, his his people, because he participates in them even as they participate in him. So, Jesus is so intimately tied to his people, union with Christ, he is literally in union with us that our suffering in this life is directly tied with his suffering on the cross, and he, in turn, is with us in our suffering. So what Jesus endured on the cross was not merely the penalty of sin, though again, clearly it was that. It was the entire wretchedness of the human condition. Think about it. Disease, abuse, trauma, death, shame, nakedness, which he took Upon himself in order to redeem us from it. I mean, just go read Hebrews 12, and you see that there. As McCaskill writes, and that wretchedness is being redeemed even at the moment of its greatest sense of abandonment when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That phrase is more than just the cry of the one who bears our sin. It is also the cry of the one who, is, who has united the absolute lostness of Adam's race to himself. So to be united to Christ is to share in his cross. Not only is the willing self-sacrifice for him, but also in terms of bewildering suffering. Again, as McCaskill writes, sometimes we resemble Christ most at the points when we cry, why have you forsaken me? In other words, union with Christ, life in the gospel, often looks and feels like defeat. Let me say that again, because so much of what is put out there these days is that you have victory in Christ, and that looks like you're triumphing. No, no. Life in the gospel often looks and feels like defeat, just as Christ felt it on the cross. So when you are in your deepest pain, when you feel the most alone, is precisely the moment when we are participating in the life of Christ and he, in turn, is in us. And what this means then is that our suffering is never meaningless, even when we cannot find meaning in it. So, for example, Job was, was never told why he endured so much pain and loss. God never answered his cry of, why me? What did I do to deserve this? No, he didn't answer Job's cry with an explanation. He answered Job's cry with his presence. And the reality is, apart from Christ, suffering is meaningless. It's meaningless. It's just an unfortunate result of living in a cruel and brutal world where you are all on your own. And why bother? With Christ, our suffering has meaning even when we can't see it or understand it because it is a participation in his life. But more so even, we can suffer with hope. Even so, what often makes suffering so hard beyond the obvious physical or emotional turmoil is that, like Job, we do want answers. Why is this happening, God? Why did you allow this to happen to me or to my kid? Why did you take her from me? And this longing for meaning as if, if we knew the reason or could see the logic or the purpose of it, it would give us some solace or we could bear it up better, it often leads us to question the goodness of God, which, of course, is what Job started to do. Now, as an aside, there is nothing wrong with asking God those questions. Nothing. There is nothing wrong with feeling bewildered or exasperated. So when our our friends or family are in the midst of suffering and they are grasping for meaning, we should resist the urge to play God and explain things to them as if we can see as God sees. If Jesus cried out, perfectly holy, if he cried out, I think it's appropriate for us to cry out to God too. But again, where we so often run afoul is not in crying out or even in feeling hopeless, It's the lie that so often bubbles up in the midst of that, that we will never be the same again. Now, that's true. That's true. Suffering changes things, sometimes irrevocably. 
But the lie is that we don't believe our suffering can, in any sense, be good. The good life I had is now over. And life will never meet with my expectations. So like Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, where once was pleasantness or sweetness, that's what Naomi means, there is now only Mara, that is bitterness. That's my life from here on out. It's all bitterness, and this is as good as it gets. And I want to tread softly here. I want to tread softly here. It is right and normal to experience such feelings when in the midst of suffering. My God, why have you done this to me? That's normal. And we do real damage when we insist a person quickly get over it. Or worse, we accuse them of doubting God. Surely Jesus did not doubt his father in the midst of his agony. If we're seeking to, to comfort someone, it is best, I have found, to remain silent and grieve with that person. And one of the best things you can say, if you say anything at all, and the sad part is we often feel like we need to fill the silences, or we need to say something because we're so uncomfortable. If you have to say anything at all, perhaps the best thing you can say is, I don't know why this happened, and I'm so sorry. You know, only in time do we point the person to the character of his suffering. Jesus suffered like this too. He is in you and you are in him. You are participating in his life and he is participating in yours. But you know what? It takes time to get there. God is patient. The nature of the lie, I am my worst moment then, is that our suffering's meaning or its value is directly equated to what we've lost and not to what we already have in Christ. So if my vision for the good life has been ripped from me, and there is, then there is nothing, nothing to hope for in this life. So when someone has endured trauma, like say what Bathsheba endured, what good is there? and hoping for anything of value or worth in this life. I will always be damaged goods. Like Naomi, I will never get another husband. I'm too old, and, I, and have, I have no more sons. Like Daniel, I've been stolen from my homeland, and I will die in exile. Like Mary, I've been branded a whore, and I've in turn lost my oldest son. What stands behind this lie is not merely the economic recipe of happiness, but the belief that this life is all there is. And if this version of my life is as good as it gets and I really liked it, then why bother at all? But again, Paul sees things differently. Paul grounds his hope in the resurrection of Jesus. That's where his hope is grounded. If we were crucified with Christ and we participate in his suffering, then we will be raised with Christ too and participate in his resurrection. Consider what he says in Romans 8. This is starting with verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. That's real pain right up into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's us too, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, which is what we are all waiting on. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. 
Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So though we are already united to Christ and we're indwelled by his spirit, still we await the redemption of our bodies in the resurrection. Paul says the resurrection is what our hope in this life must be set on, even as we inwardly groan in suffering. We can endure suffering because we know suffering will one day come to an end. So we do not hope in what we see. We do not hope in our circumstances. That is the great temptation, and everybody does it, but we must resist. We do not hope as the world does, so that when the American dream is in shambles, when we are sinned against, when someone we love dies, when we receive a terminal diagnosis, when our vision of the future collapses, our lives do not lose their meaning. Now, can such losses be crushing? Yes! Absolutely they can. And if left to deal with this all on our own, if left to create a new life or new meaning for ourselves, we will never recover from those crushing losses. But because of our participation in Christ's life, we know that sin and suffering do not have the final word on us. And so we can wait for the resurrection with patience. This is a whole other sermon, but I just have to say this as an aside. This is also what enables us to forgive. Embedded in this whole notion of my worst moment of sins against me is the notion of forgiveness. It is because of the hope of the resurrection, it is because you are united to Christ that you can forgive, not because you're a morally great person. If left to yourself, you will not. But let me encourage you with this, as we've all been sinned against, perhaps you are no more acting like God than when you forgive. Than when you forgive. It's why later in in chapter 8, Paul winds up asking the question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? If Christ is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against us? Jesus is the judge. And he's our redeemer. And as Paul writes at the very end of that, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I once heard that passage preached in a makeshift church in a Mexican slum where raw sewage ran down the middle of the street. Those Christians suffered Their daily life was suffering. And they believed that passage in a way that at the time, I did not. And I was the supposed missionary. To bring it closer to home, consider what Chad Bird, a a Lutheran Old Testament scholar, recently posted. He wrote, how do you make it through the birthday of your child who is now a Jesus? You cry. You smile at good memories. You pray. You stay close to family. You trust and know he is safe with Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Luke Gabriel Bird, we'll see you again. His son died recently, his adult son in the military. Beautiful, beautiful young man. And what's so good about that post, what makes it utterly Christian, is that he doesn't minimize his suffering. 
He doesn't try to appear like he's not struggling. He knows he will never see his son again in this life. He knows life will never go back to the way it was, and he has daily and yearly reminders of that fact. Birthdays, Christmas, anniversaries, important milestones with his other children. But he has hope even as that hope is not without tears. His hope is in the resurrection and the life, and without it, his son is gone forever. Even so, what sin and suffering has taken, and it does, it does take, God often gives back in unexpected ways. So Naomi, though through her, her Moabite daughter-in-law, which I almost did the whole sermon on that, through her Moabite daughter-in-law, regained her ancestral land and was given an unforeseen family. She could not have predicted this. She had joy again, even as what was lost to her never returned. Bathsheba, while losing her husband, not only gained an unexpected son, God loved her son and set him apart as the next king of Israel, the partial fulfillment of the Davidic covenant whose lineage led directly to the Messiah and her son, not David, would build the temple. In 1 Kings 2, it is clear that not only did Solomon love his mother, he held her in such high esteem, even seating her at his right hand and taking counsel from her, like a perfect picture of of Proverbs 31. Will God give you back everything you've lost? No. Daniel never saw Jerusalem again, and he died in Babylon, most likely as a eunuch. But what Daniel, Naomi, and Bathsheba did have, what could not be taken from them was God himself and his steadfast loving kindness. And he has given to them more and more than what they lost. You have that too. You have God himself, and he's greater than anything else you will ever know and experience. God will never let you go. So you are not your worst moment. Your suffering is not the end of you. Your loss is not the end of your life. And though it may feel like it, It is not the end of your happiness. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. That is who you are. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is no gift like the gift of Jesus. And I know many in this room are mourning. I know many are in pain. I know many are suffering. Thank you for the comfort we have in Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.